And so we're going to a series of Sunday School lessons called Saints and Scoundrels. And the idea was to look at characters, the lives of biblical characters, with the lens of why is this story in the Bible? Um, I mean, seriously, that's a wonderful way to look at it and go, what is it that God preserved this story for His people and the church what can we learn here? A lot of times stories kind of are read and they're familiar. And at a second glance, uh, going back and sitting still, you, you, you see a lot more of their character. And what you find also in Scripture is that you have the constant call to remember. It's one of the most frequent things that you'll see. One of the most frequent admonitions to someone is that they have forgotten. That they've forgotten what the Lord has done. They've forgotten what the Lord does when people obey. I've forgotten what the Lord does when people don't obey. So the storyline of the Bible and the individual characters that make up that storyline become, um, they become for us, in some ways, a judgment. That did you not, did you not see that when you act like that, that there's blessing? Do you not see that there's, when you act like that, there's curses? Um, so let's talk a little bit about character and about story. Good morning, Wendy. Um, one of the wonderful ways that God has knitted the world is that I think we are um, taught more profoundly in story than almost anywhere else. And by the way, we can talk back and forth. That's what this will be a dialogue. Do you all feel like that's true? That we're taught more profoundly in story than anywhere else? Uh, I think that's absolutely true. We, we gave an illustration last week with David. David sinned with Bathsheba. Remember, then he went on to double down and kill her husband Uriah to try to cover up that. And he got many other people killed uh, along the way. And, and Nathan the prophet had to come to him. And instead of just calling him out in his sin, what did he do? Told him a story. Told him a parable. And the interesting thing about that is that before he even connected the dots that he was the man, the, the story had done its work. He was enraged. Who, whoever that man is, let, let's, let's, let's have at it. That guy's horrible. And Nathan said, you're the man. The story snuck behind his defenses. The story snuck behind preconceived notions that he had in his mind. The stories sneak behind our hearts and teach us things that sometimes we cannot see if someone just writes it down and says, here's the lesson and here's the five points you need to learn from the story. It's just a different way of learning. That's why Jesus comes and he says, okay, well, I've been trying to tell you guys a little bit about the kingdom. Okay, well, the kingdom is like this. And he proceeds to tell a story. That's his method. And so in a little bit of that, that's what we're doing in these series on saints and scoundrels. It's looking at these stories and going, all right, what is it that can sneak behind the back door that is making me think a little differently than I normally would, that's igniting my imagination and igniting my moral sense of imagination and, and instructing me that I might not otherwise see. So let me pause right there. Is this, is this true for any of you guys? Uh, is there any example where story has sort of taught you more than just a lesson? I don't, I don't know. I can't think of a specific example, but I would say that it is true and that it's similar. It reminds me of um, when you teach children. You teach them in song, in music, right. and in story. 
And so music and story often go hand in hand. Right. And so it's very similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the benefits of narrative uh, as, a, as a tool of learning is, it, is oftentimes it exposes your true motives. Um, so a helpful thing sometimes for me is I'll hear uh, when I'm wanting to sort of evaluate who I am, what I'm acting like. So if I'm being short-tempered with my children or uh, not kind to my wife, um, well, who, what character in the story am I? For me, in my imagination, that suddenly clarifies it. I'm, I'm the bad guy in the story. Or, have you ever read a book and you're going, just, I hate every page that that guy's on. It's just an obnoxious character. I can't wait to get to somebody who's, who's friendly, who's kind. Who's, I mean, you read the game, just like, get out of here. So many times, I am that character. I'm the B character who walks in and just complains. He comes in the story, oh, you know, it's just this horrible sense of misbehavior. And I can't see that in myself sometimes unless I put it in that arc of what kind of character am I being? And I was a, a leader of a school for a few years. Oftentimes with kids, to your point with children, I, I couldn't connect with them that they were misbehaving. And you use words like that. You're not, you're not a good listener. You're misbehaving. We would talk to them about stories. They would love Batman. These are little kids, but love Batman. Like, well, yeah, but do you, you know, but then the, the, the Joker comes in and he's pushing everybody. He's like, oh, yeah, he's bad way to hit him. Like, yeah, buddy, you're kind of acting like the Joker. <gasps> like you could just, this moral clarity off of a kid's, oh, oh, no, I don't, like I want to be the good guy, you know. And so we kind of use that. And I'm setting this up to say the, these stories are not just a neat little lesson in these next few Sunday school weeks. They are in print for thousands of years preserved for the church to learn and to examine. Um, and it's not you put it into a machine and out comes the black and white clarity of a moral situation. They're real people. And you know why they're beneficial to us? Because we have real lives and we're real people. That's a wonderful thing. That you don't just get in Scripture this list of all these heroes and they're just so polished and they have these perfect lives and Scripture says, be like David, you know, be like Moses. Why can't you be like these guys? You don't get that. You get their flaws, you get their circumstances, you get their doubts, you get their missteps and miscalculations, and they're all here for our benefit and they're for us to learn by. So that's what we want to look at today. Last week we studied the character of Amnon. So all these are not going to be characters that you should imitate, right? I hope that you are not an Amnon uh, in any way. Um, but uh, some of these characters are to be imitated, like our character today, the character of Mordecai from the book of Esther. So Mordecai. So if you have your Bible, if you'll go ahead and open, I will call on some of you to read. If you might need a Bible, there's an extra here. <clears throat> I've got, somebody need, want one kind of extra? So we will obviously not book, read the book of Esther during our time. So I'll have to summarize some, and then I'll call on you to read some. But what we'll do is, um, like we did last week, if you were here, what was great is just the rich back and forth. 
me noticing some things that I want to draw out from the text and, and show you. And then if you see anything, what we're looking for is character study. Where are they trusting? Where are they doubting? Where are they engaging? How are they as characters in God's world? And how can we learn from that for good or for bad? Or just to notice. So anything you notice, just shoot a hand up. And let's study the text because this is how we are intended uh, to navigate the scriptures. Right? We're meant to wrestle with these characters. We're meant to study them and remember. And so let's get, dive into the book of Esther So, the, and the character Mordecai. So this is the Jewish uh, life in exile. That's kind of what's happening here. The Jews have been uh, taken captive at this point. They're in Babylonian captivity. Uh, then they go into Persian uh, rule. So they've been taken captive by the Babylonians. So that's one kingdom. That kingdom was conquered by the Persians. And that's where we're at. Okay, so they are in exile. So they're not in their homes. They're in a foreign land under foreign rule. And they're having to navigate all of these great questions of, aren't we God's people? Didn't he make promises to us? Uh, aren't we going to have a redeemer one day? Um, it's, you know, now we're surrounded by all these temples to all these other gods, and they seem to be much stronger than our God. Much more beautiful buildings. We don't have buildings anymore. We don't have anything. How are we to trust God? So that's a unique place. I mean, you can imagine how you feel. Right? You don't see God. You don't see where, where is he? Imagine how they felt. Right? They're completely captured by another kingdom. You ever see the movie 300, by the way? Anybody? Right. Yes. 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 What's the, what's the famous line? This is Sparta. Oh, yeah. This is Sparta. Yeah. This is Sparta. Uh, that crazy looking guy with all the chains from his, from his like, head and ear, that's, that's Xerxes. Right? So that's who we're talking about in, in this book. That's the, that's the ruler here. Um, so there's a king. Uh, the text will call him Ahasuerus. You'll see elsewhere his name is Xerxes. Uh, I think that's a Greek rendering of his name. I'll use Xerxes. Let's look at chapter 1. Let's kind of set the stage before entering our character Mordecai later on in chapters 2 and 3, this is what's going on. So King Xerxes is throwing a, a massive feast. Uh, if you can see in your text, uh, I think this feast is a 180-day feast or something, like a six-month flaunt of his kingdom, his hunting, his grain storage, his all the nations that he's captu captured, all their temples and pottery and vessels, and it's just a mad, drunken, kind of grotesque spectacle. And while he's doing that, he calls for his, uh, his, his guard to bring in one of his concubines, his wife, the, the queen, Vashti, and says, oh, you, you're seeing all of my things, you're seeing all my exotic things that I've gotten from all around these different realms. Well, let me show you one of the most exotic. Bring in my wife. So come put her on display. It's, it's a gross kind of spectacle. It's what it looks like. And she refuses. Right? It seems that she knows what's kind of happening to her. But you don't refuse the command of the king. It's not something that you should do. So she refuses. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 12. The king is probably embarrassed at this point. He's thrown this amazingly lavish party. And she's made him mad. So the king sent an edict to remove Vashti from her role as queen. Um, and it also probably sent a signal, a strong signal, to all the other 
wives that that is not an acceptable thing to do. I don't really know what happened to her. I don't imagine that she just went away quietly and joined back into the, you know, harem there. Um, but chapter 2, let's move on to get to Mordecai. Chapter 2. We're told that the king needs a new wife. At least he needs a new queen. He needs a new sort of gem in his crown, sort of the darling, the most beautiful as Vashti was to put up in as a spectacle of his prowess and his power. Um, so we're told that there's a man, he was in exile, a Jewish man named Mordecai, who raises a woman named Hadassah. We call her Esther. Her other name's Esther. And he is, um, it's his uncle's daughter. So sometimes you'll hear her refer, referred to as his niece. It's not. It's really his cousin. Um, Esther is Mordecai's cousin. He protects her and he provides for her. But she has called to come in to a group of women to prepare themselves for the king, for him to choose the new queen. And, and what's described is really odd, is they're described as they have like a month to go like put oil all over themselves. And I, I don't know how oil works, but I don't know if it needs a month. Uh, I've heard it described as like one of those uh, sun-dried tomatoes in a can of oil you get at the store. It's like, what are they, what's the purpose of a month's worth of oil? Um, but they were to prepare themselves to present themselves to the king. It was at this time, the only thing you really need to know from chapter 2 is that he tells Esther not to identify herself as a Jewish woman, as a Hebrew. Let's pause right here. What are you getting from the story so far? Is there anything you're picking up on? Any questions you have? You don't have a lot to go with yet. Okay? It's all right. I think that's interesting. We're not told why he tells them, don't. Don't tell her, don't tell the king where you're from. That's, a, that's interesting. Hold on to that. So in verse 10 of chapter 2, she did not make known her ethnicity. Um, and then Mordecai would come, verse 11, and check on her every day. So we do see his character. He's, he's, he's caring, he's winsome, and it seems that he's got his eyes open. Let me stop here for just a second and ask you guys a question. This is a difficult one from Scripture. It's one that presents to us. Um, it sort of suggests that Mordecai is a little complicit in offering up Esther to be a concubine of the king knowing that the Lord might rescue his people through her. We're told explicitly that later on in the chapters we're going to get to that Mordecai thinks that Esther it is to be used for such a time as this to protect the Jewish people. What are your thoughts on lying, murdering, seducing as a tool for truth, goodness, and beauty? That's a loaded question. Let's talk about it. Do we see it anywhere else in Scripture? Is it always wrong? Isn't lying always wrong? Okay. 
Let's talk, let's, talk, let's talk about that. And I'm not here advocating this, by the way. I'm just asking a question. So is he telling her that she should be ashamed of who she is truly to imitate this other person that she's not? Oh, that's a good question. Is she, should she be ashamed of who she is? I don't, think it's, I don't think it's that. Does anybody else think it's shame or something else? Deception. It's deception. Is she, sorry, that story you're probably more familiar. Does she specifically say she's not a Jew or does she just not? She doesn't, she just doesn't reveal say. it. She doesn't reveal it. Is that a lie if you don't reveal something about yourself? Because you would have to be asked specifically, are you a yeah. Jew? And you have to say no. Good question. All right, so let's shift, let's shift the biblical example. Do you have to reveal who you are? Tamar, to her father-in-law. Do you all know the story where Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her because he was supposed to give her an heir, and he didn't? It says that she's more righteous than he was, and that through her line we get Jesus. What do we think about these things? Are there different rules applied maybe in a time of war? Or what, what do y'all think? I mean, I read these stories and I say, look how God has redeemed this horrific arc. Not necessarily like, look at this example I need to follow. <laughs> yes, but I think you have to have both. I think you have to take your cues not just what God can do, because he can, he can do right through wicked means. And there are times when we learn explicitly that the character was acting unjustly. And then strangely, we are told to imitate other characters. And we go, well, <laughs> uh, huh? that's so <coughs> different than my maybe Western modern sense of morality, my landscape of what I think is Good, true, beautiful. What about what about boys? What do y'all think? Time, times of war. Is it right to thou shalt not kill? Well, I know that killing, and if it's a just war and a just cause, killing is not a bad thing. Killing for defense and for protecting people is not a bad thing. Kind of to Wendy's point, though, isn't lying always bad? What about? No, I believe neither is um, lying if you do it, again, for protecting, if you're trying to... It's not always... It's, it can't be just protecting, because you could argue that like protecting to get out of trouble is protecting, so you can lie, but... I'll stick on the position of saying lying isn't always wrong. Okay, what do you think? Flesh it out for a second. We'll, we'll move off from this point, but well, just... This is what we get in the story. It's interesting. It requires wisdom. Okay. Everything we talked about requires wisdom, and people want black and white rules, and because you want right. black and white rules, you want what is right in every single situation, therefore I can just do that thing that's right in every single situation, and it's never that easy. Yeah. It always requires wisdom. And so you have Rahab and the spies in Jericho, and she explicitly lies yeah. to the men, telling them where they went, and they obviously didn't go that way. And she was saved because of her like. Mm-hmm. And she's in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. She's in the Hebrews Hall of Fame. You're in Nazi Germany. You're asked to be in the basement. <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you don't tell them you're abusing your basement. Like, yeah. It's clear. All right. 
What were you going to say? Thinking of it as I was thinking like that thing is it wisdom. Is it also Esther having to be submissive to the authority that God has placed her under because her cousin is now her authority and not her parents? Hmm. And so she's having to be submissive and refer to um, his to her cousin's wisdom. Yeah, that's an interesting point you pick up on because one of the dynamics of this whole story is that you're told the character and then their advisor. Mm-hmm. Every character on this in the story almost has an advisor, mm-hmm. and it is interesting you pick up on that point that she she listens to counsel. Um, Haman listens to counsel. The king listens to counsel. And, and, but to your point, and I see some hands, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But to your point, this is exactly why we're reading stories. Because that's not the, the when I ask the question and it kind of lands on us, like, oh, like you, that's not right. It, that's good. That's, that's a good thing. But lives are different. And lives require wisdom. And they require obedience. And they require faith. Which is why we need the stories to learn and strengthen our impulses because I don't have the impulse sometimes to be a Rahab or a Tamar. Or, you know, that to me seems so foreign and, and I think those circumstances are very unique. But what's also unique is that it's presented to us in Scripture. Preserved for us to do with what we will. And you know what happened as a result of that deception and even seduction on her part? She is kind of seducing the king. She saved her people. And there is a there is a celebration of that act to this day. It's interesting. Right? History in the Bible is complex. Jason? Well, we've also been talking about consistently how in the Ten Commandments it's a lot going into the heart behind a lot of the actions. Yeah. That it goes over instead of the actions simply in and of themselves. And so I, what I wouldn't say is that just breaking the Ten Commandments with sincerity means that that doesn't count as breaking. <laughs> as long as you're honest, if you do right. it sincerely. Right. Um, I wouldn't go that far. But like, there, there can be an honest evaluation of the heart behind the action. So the example with, with lying about whether or not you have juice in your basement. The heart behind that is to help prevent murder, which is following a commitment, but technically breaking the line. So mm-hmm. again, where where is the heart behind it? I think I think that's a very complex issue. It's not as as you said, it's not black and white, one size fits all. Um, you have to really think about it yeah. in terms of how it works and struggle with it because I think the same action can can theoretically be sinful or not, depending on the intention behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? It really is. It's not, there's not a simple answer. Even from the teacher this morning, like there's not a simple way to put that other than you have whole books in the Bible, the wisdom literature, and you'll have verses in that book that'll say, do this, and then the, do the exact opposite. And it'll say, navigate that. Navigate that in wisdom. Well, let's, inter- let's interact with that for just a second. Okay. That's, a, that's a good point, because you, you brought up intentions, which is interesting. Because does intention necessarily matter? Like, does it does intention matter? If I intend to do the right thing and I do the wrong thing, does my intention matter? What does your wife say? <laughs> uh, no, I don't know that the uh, intention matters. Jesus gives a story on that: the man who intended to go and the man who did not intend to go, and the you know, the, the one who 
was obedient, was the one who uh, was honored. But I think sometimes you can be deceptive in the name of truth, trying to regard, the, trying to trying to uphold the truth. That's a so that's not a lesson. It is complex. Let's move on. <laughs> Somebody read verses 19 through 23 of Esther chapter 2. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For <clears throat> Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. How many verses? Through 23. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Nice. Okay, so if you know the story, you know this is a big... Sort of uh, what they call MacGuffin, right, in the movie, right? This is the thing that pushes the plot along. Now we've got um, uh, what happened. So somebody, somebody just interpret those verses for me. What, what, did he, what did he hear? He was hanging out by the king's gate. He discovered a plot against the king. He heard, discovered a plot against the king, told it to, why, how did he have access to the king now? Through Esther. Through Esther. So he had access to the king. She related it found that the plot was credible, the men were, were hanged, and it was written down in the Chronicles of the Book. Um, uh, recorded in the Book of the Chronicles in the Presence of the King, which is really funny. We'll come to that, back to that book in just a minute. So enter the character, dun, 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 Haman. So we have a pretty good bad guy in this story uh, with all the, all the grotesque, uh, grotesquery. Somebody read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. We're just going to kind of skip around here. Um, getting through this story. One through six. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman to the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Woo! Okay, so there's some interesting stuff going on here. We've got this guy, Haman. He's been promoted. And he's the big guy on campus. So when he rides around, people pay respect. <coughs> Obviously, who didn't pay respect? Mordecai. But what are we told that Mordecai did when asked about his refusal to bow. He revealed he was a Jew. He revealed he was a Jew. The very thing he told Esther not to do. Right? That tells us what about the story? I think that tells us that that information, that, that piece of information is important enough that it could get her in trouble and important enough to get him into trouble. Which is what he seemed to want. 
you, 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 you want to get in trouble when you look around and everyone's bowing down and you're just standing there. You're not bowing down. By the way, I'm Jewish. You know, I am a conquered people in a foreign land under the biggest empire the world's literally, I think the Persian Empire was the biggest empire the world had ever known. And he's standing up and he's just looking at him and going, come at me. What are we told about Haman? How did Haman respond to that? <clears throat> What's his character like? To come down and deal with him man to man? Mono y mono? He's a cowardly, sulky man. He's a cowardly, sulky man. He's a gourd. We're talking about the veggie tail version of him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a gourd? Oh, man. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out. Um, it would be hilarious if they did the sun dried tomatoes in the oil thing. That's <laughs> like, that's your one chance, veggie tails. Oh, man. All right. Well, somebody read verse 7. The very next verse, verse 7 of chapter 3. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. All right. So Haman cast lots. It seems to... To, to sort of distinguish the day of the Jewish extermination. So he's, he's sort of having a day of reckoning. That's really bizarre. So he, his ego is bruised right, by a man who won't bow. Who is this man, they're told? This is Mordecai. He's Jewish. And it's said in verse it it 5 or 6 that he, he would disdain to lay hands on Mordecai alone, but from that day on sought, how I'm just going to wipe, I'm going to wipe out Mordecai, you and your family, your, your, your kids, everybody. So he cast lots to see when that would be. Verse, uh, verses 9 and 13 from chapter 3, we have, uh, I'll just skip, skip this so we can read in chapter 4, is Haman asks the king if he can pay him a large sum to exterminate the Jews. Can, you, can, I, can I pay you a large sum and get rid of these people? And the money to do this would come from plundering other people. Verse 13. Right, so Haman is just like this whole extermination of not just God's people, what are we connecting this to in Scripture? Why would that be a bad thing to exterminate the Jews if we're reading this on the page? What do we, what do we know before this? All of God's covenants. All of God's promises to Abraham. All of God's faithfulness to, through the Exodus. Right? Here we have all the people with no king, and they've been run out to another country the Babylonians broke down their temple. Their temple's destroyed. And they're about to be completely annihilated. This is why Esther's story is just so filled with a lesson for I mean, for them, it's, it was so historic. They came down to the actions of singular people that God used. So the king agrees. And when the king agrees, and the Persians, right, they call that the law of the... Medes and Persians. Right? It comes up later because what the king decrees cannot be turned back. In other words, you know, if something transpires in the course of this story and the king wants to stop it, his hands are now tied. Ah, the king made a command. Uh, the, king doesn't, the king doesn't 
take back what he says. So it's done. Their, their fate is sealed. The Jews are going to be exterminated. Verses 10 through 17 of chapter 4. Boys, one of you guys read it? Uh, Nathan or William? Yeah. Which verse? Uh, 10 through 17, chapter 4. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to, put, to be put to, to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter to. Scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's, into, into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Eth, Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews, Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Not eat or drink for three days. Night or day, I and my young woman will also fast, as you do. Then I will go to the king, although it is against the law. And if I... Perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as a straight order. Nice, great. So now they're they're under this kind of condemnation from Haman. Their people are going to be exterminated. The lots have been cast. The day has been chosen, um, and they got to do something. So what are they going to do? What do we What do we? Hear? You don't have to diagnose the story so much, but what are we learning about these people? What's Mordecai's inclination to do? How does he speak? Um, Esther, same thing. Well, how do they respond in in light of such tragic and all-consuming news? What are we told about their character? Go ahead, Chase. Mordecai believes wholeheartedly that they're going like they're going to be saved in some way or another. Now, he's saying Esther was the one put here to do it, but even if Esther doesn't do it, it's going to happen. Yes, that's exactly right. Where, where else are we seeing that type of language in Scripture? Language that says, I know this is going to happen, even if I perish. I know, God, I know God will be faithful. Any other stories jump out? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. I think you see that in the garden, right? You know, it's, hey, any other way? Okay, no. This is, your will be done. But I think even more to that specific point, I mean, how about Abraham when he's going to sacrifice Isaac? All right, let's go. Go up the mountain. Uh, you guys coming back? Yeah, we're coming back. God's going to be faithful. I got to go up and sacrifice my son. But we're both coming back. It's interesting. I don't know how he's going to provide a way, but he's made a promise, and I know that it's going to come true. I mean, when we're talking about faith, that seems like, oh, they're just in another class. They're extraordinary. But yeah, but there are people that we're supposed to imitate. 
I mean, the people in the Hall of Faith, the Hebrews 11, look at their family. I mean, you have the, the Abraham. What about another one? I think there's another, uh, there's, there's, a, there's another scripture that speaks it almost the exact same way. Is it, um, is it Daniel or is it Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I think it's, it might be Daniel. Right? Well, Daniel's cast into the, the lion's den. He's like, look, I don't, I don't know if God's going to save me or not, but I'm not going to bow down to you to bow down to your statue, right? That's an, let's talk about that for a minute. What does that look like in, in the life of faith? How, how would you apply that into your own life? What would that do to your actions, mindset? I think you would do a lot more if you have faith that it's going to happen. So you're just going to move forward and take some. Yeah. I'm with you. And my life, it's usually not a lion's den or, um, you know, the king. That's not, that's not my life personally. Um, but uh -oh. it is when I have a lot of promises about my assurance of my pardon and being redeemed in Christ, being redeemed from guilt that I carry around or accusation that I carry around. And who knows, there might be situations in my life where God has promised and I have to act in bravery. But that very dynamic that you said of just being able to go, like, be quiet, fear, be quiet, doubt, be quiet, um, you know, self-pity. Moses, I'm a man of unclean, you know, I can't talk well. No, and then just, this is a promise, I'm going to go. The people in Scripture who are highlighted for us as examples are people who can do that. They're not perfect people. And a lot of times they're kind of like grotesque people that you want to look down on. Like, all oh, their lives are tawdry. There's so much stuff going on. But there are moments like that where they say, but the Lord's commanded and I'm going. And I think David last week was a good example of that. So he's a man after God's own heart, had this kind of horrific sense. His, his family line really broke down. His kids got all out of whack. But then the Bible says you need to be like David. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good news for us, I think, when you bring out a great point. All right, any, anything else from the text? What do we get from Esther's side or Mordecai's side? Do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief, will, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So, go ahead. I mean, I... <clears throat> would say this answers the earlier questions that you brought up about his relationship with Esther and is he using her as a pawn is he you know we can look at this through a very modern sense of um, you know patriarchy evil but first of all he did not put her in the <laughs> he did not put her yeah in the, she in the was harem. yeah she was um, Secondly, he's doing everything he, I mean, that's why he's outside the gate every day. He's trying to protect her, mm -hmm. wants to know what's going on. And then when the rub, here's the rub where he says, don't do anything. You're going to die. And so he's still, and he, yes, he still has faith that the Lord will save his people. But he's like, D you're going to, you don't need to do anything. And, then, and yes, she feels the freedom to say, no, I am in a position 
to, I, I'm going to do differently than you suggest. I'm going to go see the king. And that, and she's the one that says, if I perish, I perish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's, no, it is a very different, um, it is not what our modern sensibilities mm-hmm. look at initially. Yeah. I think this story really puts my hairs on edge, exactly what you're saying on modern sensibilities. And I think that that's, uh, that particular line, which is so well used in our you know, kind of Christian vocabulary for such a time as this, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, what is, he, what is it exactly it is, it is it that he is saying to her regarding her circumstance? Because it's not great circumstances. I mean, she's a concubine of the king. She is uh, in a, a condemned people. She's not protected even as the king's concubine. But what did he? What is, what is Mordecai's wisdom in that in that moment? To trust God. To, to trust God. But I think specifically, it's that even even if you think your situation stinks, and it might really stink. Has it not crossed your mind that you might be there for such a time as this? That it actually might be that the, the, the reason that you're there and all the decisions that led up to it and all the hardships that led up to it and that you don't have a mom and dad and that you were raised by your cousin and that you were conscripted, conscripted by the king to be in this moment here and the king hasn't even come you know, to you in 30 days, which read between the lines on that. Uh, that's a rough spot to be in, and Mordecai still has the faith to say, wouldn't God use it? I mean, boom, apply that to any other scripture story where, look at Joseph. That's almost explicitly what Joseph says. Hated by my brothers, sold into slavery, uh, prisoner, you know, falsely accused. Oh, God meant it for good. Like, we don't have that type of thing at the top of our brain most of the time. What's at the top of our brain most of the time? My circumstance stinks, and what did I do wrong, and I'm just a no good, and God loved me, put me in a different place, and there wouldn't be suffering. No, that's not, that's not why we have stories like this. God doesn't always... Heaven is not here. Does that make sense? If you're expecting heaven and, and the perfect and kind of Instagrammable life here, well, that's false. God is using all of his people, the world, and history, and movements, and wars, and famines, and COVID, and covenant of grace. And if, you, if we think differently, if we think, but it's not what I would have chosen, then we've got a problem with the God of the Bible. Because he always says, well, that's exactly where I put you. So it is the wisdom of the character. It is the wisdom of Mordecai to say, Embrace where you are and be faithful in it. And those are the types of stories that are preserved when God says, oh, that's my, that's my man right there. That's David after my own heart. That's Esther. We're going to have a celebration of Purim for the next <laughs> 3,000 years, right, as a remembrance of faith, even if you're in a situation that you don't think, you think God is somewhere abandon you or let his hand off or you're, you, you messed up. Well, sure, take their thoughts on that. They could have easily said, well, I did this and I, whatever. But what a glory to be that kind of character. 
And I think that's why studies like this are important, because God goes, that's, that's why that's in the Bible. That's why that's there. <clears throat> All right. We've got 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Haman's pettiness and his plot. Verses 9 through 14 of chapter 5. We'll go quickly. 9 through 14, chapter 5. And then if somebody will be quickly ready after that, chapter 6. Well, I'll, I'll read that. It's a long section. So somebody read chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent, uh, sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced with him above the officials and servants of the king. And Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. <clears throat> Do I not have eighteen sons and all this gold, and Queen Esther invited me to her banquet? It's really funny how like kind of lavish this bad guy is, uh, how almost a caricature he is. But he's plotting... And we are told, the reason why we didn't read it is because we're told in this section of Scripture, Esther, uh, you know, she's told that she could be killed if she goes and goes into the king's chambers and says, Hey, I'm, I'm a Hebrew girl. I know that you love me and you want me as your queen, but please save my people. So she's, she was going to say, Hey, I, I might do that even if I perish. But we are told what she does is she plans a banquet. And if it pleases the king, that he would come, and Haman is invited to come to the banquet. This is really interesting how the cogs begin to turn for God to turn this story. Um, she does something unique. She, in her panic and in her moment of bravery, I would have thought, well, if the Lord spares me, I'll just go in and tell him, ask him to save, save us. He doesn't. Haman plans his plot. He gets counsel from his wife and friends. Hey, go ahead and build a gallows, and we will hang Mordecai. Uh, one of the wonderful ironies, one of the best in all of literature, comes right here in chapter 6. I'll read it. On the night the king could not sleep, uh, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. I love that. Bring out the book of memorable deeds. <laughs> I'm going to keep one of those and just feel like, hmm, Jace, October 31st, memorable deed. Oh, man. And uh, it's in the Chronicles. They were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told the, at Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court now? Right? This is apparently nighttime. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hang on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. 
And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, right, thinking that it's him, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It's an amazing section. Can you imagine Mordecai getting that knock on the door from Haman that night? And like he's seen him, he's like, oh, all right, it's go time. He's like, no, I have a horse for you to sit on. <laughs> like uh, very, very rich irony. Very, very rich in, in just that how God, there's not much to diagnose here, I guess. Uh, we'll go quickly that God is turning these cogs. He is working for his good. In the middle of the night, the king can't sleep. What does he decide to do? He'll pull out the book of memorable deeds and who shall be on that list uh, other than Mordecai, right? And it seems that Haman had made that plot for the next day to build the gallows. So it seems that even that night, he's going to the king, almost like giddy and, and sort of rat-like. And he's at nighttime saying, hey, I'm preparing to kill this guy tomorrow. Well, the king's actually awake. Come on in. Well, what should we do for the man who the king delights to honor? I mean, it's just great stuff. Um, Let's conclude. Esther 7, 7 through 10. Somebody read those three verses. We've got five minutes, and I think this is where we'll conclude our story here. Who's got it? The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Oh, man. What, what greatness. So what we've left out of that story is that Esther does throw her banquet, and Haman and the king come. And nothing really happens. She throws a banquet. She doesn't ask anything. She entertains the king. She entertains his right-hand man, Haman. And then she says, If it please the king, if he'll please come back tomorrow... For another banquet. Uh, if we had time, I think it would be interesting to sit and go back through that section and see where her actions are. They're so slow. They're so... 
They fly under the radar. What's the word I'm looking for? That they methodical. Well, it's not methodical. I don't think she's scheming. I I I, th I think she just trusts. I think she's trusting. Like that's what it seems like. Is it? I, I think she is scheming. I well, she's she, she's scheming, but I don't. She's very subtle. She's very subtle. And she's also <clears throat> doing things intentionally a certain way. Which right. She's scheming. So. It's <laughs> it's scheming. What's the word I'm looking for? What's that? But it's wisdom. It is yes. wisdom. I guess what I'm looking for, I'm not trying to say she's not scheming, but she's almost not anxious. And she's not hasty. That's the word. She's not hasty. Throwing a banquet, saying, come back again. Okay, It's this second time. It's this relaxed king. It's currying the favor of the king. And then being able to tell him. And it's almost like I mentioned earlier in the sense of story. It goes through the back door and convinces you before you've even been prompted with the question so that you are assured of your answer. That seems to be a little bit of what's happening. His, the favor she's currying, and maybe the scheming, right? Definitely the, the scheming, right? She's plotting, is that the king has now favor with Esther, enough for her to say, and, and my, my people are going to be persecuted and killed. Who's going to do that? Well, that guy sitting right there. Amen. And then Haman's panicky, right? He's not assured of, hold on one second, Jay. He's not assured of his station with the king. We're not buddy-buddy. He's like nervous. So he goes outside and we're told that Esther's laying on a couch. And it seems the narrative is that he simply just kind of trips himself up on her. It looks like assault. And then there's the gallows. They're already made. He made them, right? They're, they're ready for him. We're even told in chapter 8, on the day, the, the day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to do to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Uh, the, I mean, there is a fairy tale ending in that sense that the great irony is that Mordecai now takes the station of Haman. Esther is able to give him the signet ring, and they are able to save their people. We can go into how they save their people another time. For the sake of time, I think what we have is one of the great ironies of how God works. And if you were to go back, and I would encourage you to go back and read this story with a lens of what is God doing? How does God tell stories? Does He tell cliffhangers? Are they boring? Right? It's the Lord of the Rings with no ring. Right? There's no conflict. There's no, that's not how God tells stories. There is tension. There is conflict. There is dark and there is light. One of the greatest ironies, one of the greatest building of the gallows is, I think, uh, the Jews in Jesus' day. Right? They built the cross to crucify the Messiah, not knowing that the very thing that they're doing was crucifying the Lord of glory, the one who could rescue them. Uh, it's the one thing is, let's put him on the cross, let's kill him. But the great irony is that's the very tool, that's the very wisdom from Corinthians, that's the very means by which God saves the world. Let's get rid of this guy. And that's exactly what, what Jesus intended to do. And that's the very method that God uses to save his people, not just the Jewish race, but the church. Right? It's a beautiful way of how God moves through the world. All right, let's pray.
Father, we love you. We thank you for these stories. Give us wisdom as we continue to go through and ask questions and uh, diagnose what's going on and help us to see your hand. Help us to see your sovereignty that Mordecai seemed to see and Esther would faithfully give herself over to. Even when we can't see it, I pray that there would be others in the church that could see it that would remind us and call us to your faithful hand even in light of our circumstances. Lord, help us to be faithful even now that we think this isn't just a Bible story for a long time ago, but that we would be faithful for such a time as this today. In Christ's name, amen.